This is episode 63 of the Immunology Podcast, T-Cell Tolerance with Dr. Alice Long. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rout. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, please rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Alice Long from the Ben Arroyo Research Institute on the podcast to talk about her research on the mechanisms of immune tolerance. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights of the immunology news coming up. But first, IUIS 2023 is fast approaching. We are very excited to be attending uh, as media partners. And don't forget that the Congress will take place in Cape Town, South Africa from November 27 to December 2nd. Visit IUIS2023.org for more information. Well, is Leafs changing color and going to watch that a thing where you are, Brenda? Not as much as in as in the East Coast in the U.S. Um, we do have. I mean, I think uh, yeah, some changes, but mostly it's just no leaves anymore. Uh, I don't like that winter with all the leafless trees. I mean, it's sad. Oh, interesting. So yeah. I, I mean, I love. I'm a huge fan of fall. It's my favorite season because Is you can wear pants and a short sleeve shirt with a jacket, and you can then take a jacket off. So it's like great for being thermoregulated. <laughs> it has all of my favorite holidays and it has Halloween and Thanksgiving and Jewish New Year and all of that. <laughs> and fall food is on point. You know, it's warm enough. You can still roast stuff outside sometimes, mm -hmm. but cool enough. You can do something inside. It's not just wet and dark and gross. You're so optimistic. I, I, I just I just see the world more like that more often because all I think about fall and I think rain I am in Amsterdam, after all, it rains a lot. You seem to be very a fan of summer and all the time off that you folks in Europe all get to seem to have all the time. Yeah, the good life, the good life, you know. But I do, I do think, so where I, so I, in my hometown, uh, um, you know, down south, so fall is, starts in March and it goes into, you know, July, June. Um, and Actually, I, re I do like fall there because we do have nice uh, tree color changes. It's actually pretty cool because you have this tree that goes really furiously red around May. Uh, and then and then you see it on the on the mountains and it's like this this strip of a red because it just like it grows between a specific height, specific altitude. So you look at the mountains and there's, you know, just the green on the bottom and then just one strip of red on top. That's kind of nice. So right. I guess there are pretty things in fall sometimes. Now, do you like pumpkin spice lattes or not? No. Same. No. But I love pumpkin pie. I don't think I've ever had a proper pumpkin, pumpkin pie. Oh, <laughs> Jason well. is looking at me with like his eyes well, are just... We you have know. to fix that bit of lacking Americana. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I and I like pumpkin and I like pie, so I think I would really like a pumpkin pie if I tried it. So the spices and stuff, it's great. Cinnamon, yeah. And egg. It's all good. Mm. Well, maybe you can bring one to South Africa. What What about that? Can you bring one in the plane? How long do they stay? <laughs> you know, I probably have a refrigerator on the seat I have. So. <laughs> Oh, Mr. Mr. First Class. Mr. I have an arthritic hip and have to be able to function when I get there. Sure. It's yeah, we all know you're old. Oh, arthritis. You know, there's that does a good segue to my first paper. Oh, please tell me how <laughs> I cannot have to have a hip replacement before I'm 50. Oh God. Well, that I cannot promise. But in it's now that we're already starting, let's just let's just go for it. Um you know, I, 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 there is just no, it is no secret that I am a big fan of regulatory T cells. Um, but I think I will, uh, I will accept, I will, um, you know, accept the, 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 the fact that there are other cells that also, you know, kind of dive into reg regulation. So although T Rex, obviously do the heavy lifting here there's you know there's many mechanisms 
uh, that keep our body in homeostasis and when it comes to our immune system. And I think maybe one of the things that is wrong with you is your B cells are gone bad. So this paper I'm going to just talk about is called Antigen Presenting Autoreactive B Cells Activate the Regulatory T Cells and Suppress Autoimmune Arthritis in Mice. Uh, and first author, uh, Mike Aoun or Mike Aoun, not sure how to pronounce them. I'm really sorry, uh, uh, from the lab of Richard Homdal at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And I think this was really cool because in, in this paper, they discuss a population of B cells that are clearly autoreactive, but they're actually necessary or kind of an important uh, regulatory element uh, to prevent re recognition of their antigen by the rest of the immune cell the immune system. So what they do is they they use a model they use they, they study rheumatoid arthritis and uh, they have a model, mouse model in which they have this uh, immunization with type 2 collagen uh, which can induce uh, rheumatoid arthritis in mouse models. And they study, so they have a antigen, a, a model antigen derived from collagen uh, that they use uh, to study, you know, antigen-specific responses. And so they use this kind of novel way to pick up uh, B cells that are reactive against this, uh, ep I guess, this uh, uh, antigenic epitope in the collagen. Uh, so it's called a C1 epitope. And they so they do this in kind of regular non-sick mice. And so they and they show that indeed in regular mice, in the spleen, in the bone marrow, there are, you know, non um insignificant amounts of B cells that are reactive against this clearly self-protein, clearly self-protein that is collagen. But despite them being there, they are not really mediating any autoimmunity. So the idea is that B cells are, in principle, um, during development, they are selected, they're negatively selected, and B cells that are, have high reactivity against self-antigens are eliminated from the repertoire. But in the case of maybe affinities that are not so high, many so B cells, we know that B cells can escape this regulation. And then what happens to them? So this, they use this, this model to study what happens when a, on a B cell that is clearly self-reactive, but it's not mediated on autoimmunity. And they show that it can actually have a, a regulatory um, a, a role in the overall immune response. So what they find is that this, 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 um, these B cells I call C1B cells, uh, they are they're fine. They're found in not only in mice, but also uh, equivalent ones are found in humans and human PVMCs. And um, they are indeed autoreactive. So if you actually force the reactivity, they they will activate, for example, B T cells that are reactive against collagen. They are really B cells that are um, recognizing an antigen that is self. However, if uh, what they they show in this in this publication that they're when they 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 have a tendency to so they, in 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 vivo in the mouse these B cells are actually activating specifically regulatory T cells that are specific for this antigen and in this way they are not mediating autoimmunity but rather the opposite and they show that they do this so uh, some of the marker the characteristic markers of these cells is CCR, or CCR7 and CD72. CCR7 is a, is a chemokine receptor that is basically homes uh, cells to the lymph node. So this would give you the idea that these B cells go to the lymph node where they interact with, with T cells and with other cells. But CD72, is, which is an inhibitory lectin, that is expressed in, 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 in naive B cells. And this molecule and this, this, this interacts with certain, so they don't show exactly what it interacts with, but there's known ligands for this, for this molecule on T-Rex and it uh, mediates activation of presumably thymus-derived T-Rex that are also recognizing the self-antigen. 
this uh, also interestingly, this uh, suppression mediated by these B cells is not dependent on IL-10, which is another known regulatory phenotype of certain B cell population. But this, uh, this, this in this particular study, they seem to depend on the direct contact of these. Uh, uh, CD72 positive B cells with regulatory T cells of uh, that are recognizing the the antigen in question. So I I think it was just very interesting. So they also throw some human data, and they also suggest that this is a, a something that happens in in a human uh, uh, can also apply to the human situation, um, and that this. Uh, this could be a kind of a novel way in which uh, we understand kind of tolerance or regulation of B cell responses by B cells that are, you know, demonstrably autoreactive. So you're saying B cells don't just make antibodies? No, there's so much more to B cells. That's the, the, the unsung theme of 23 that we've been kind of hitting on every so often. We had that at the AAI meeting and a few other guests on about this all this whole hidden world of b cells but the fact that they're they're telling your t-regs what to do does that make them more important than t-regs brenda is that what what kind of loaded question is that <laughs> i mean in the end in the end they're acting through you know getting our friends the t-regs the into uh you know updated and they are so they their main thing is they're they're acquiring this antigen and they're presenting it to T-Rex and they're activating specifically T-Rex. But yeah, I think it is important to give B, B cells, you know, I think they're getting the day. Uh, what's the word? Uh, under day the sun. And I think yeah, they're day in court. Well, a little bit more or less <laughs> dramatic, but it's good. I mean, it, it is true that B cells are, you know, are versatile uh, actors in our immune system. And they're not only making antibodies. There's much more. But but you're also sounds like you're saying as a as a postdoc that the the postdoc and then does more work than the PI, which you know you got to get the work done regardless of who's telling you where to go. So the T reg the T reg's got to do the work even if the B cell is you know giving you some direction. Well, yeah, I mean, is the B cell telling the T reg what, what to do? I think it's more you know it's just sharing intelligentsia about you know the the, the environment and telling the T reg will do what it has to do. The only the only element telling the T-Reg what to do, it's its own TCR. So it's its own internal drive mm. to recognize antigen and suppress the, the immune system. So that's it's all in, intrinsic. Just like a postdoc ready to map their own lab. Exactly. I like that. That's more poetic. Thank you. So what do okay. you have? So well, what, what's your story? Cells and antigens and life or death and the meaning of all things. Uh, <laughs> my article is in immunity. It is antigen receptor signaling and cell death resistance controls intestinal humoral response zonation. First author is Fiona Razzo. Last author is Andrea Riboldi. Coming out of the Department of Pathology at the University of Massachusetts. Chan Medical School. So this came out, publication dates October 10th. Uh, but out now, obviously, since science publishes into the future. Um, so that being said, this is an interesting article. As a reminder to people, B cell receptors are based on immunoglobulins. And so this is looking at the importance of IgA B cell receptor and what that does to those cells and other cells and the pyre patches. And they find that at a super high level, um, this is really about intestinal biology and really matters there and matters less elsewhere. So first off, IgA-positive B cells dominate germinal cell reactions and are preference selected for in the memory compartment of Peyer's patches in particular. And this also is a little bit true elsewhere, but this really stands out in the germinal centers in Peyer patches. And furthermore, if you get rid of it through knockout, and by the way, they go, they have more mice in here. I think I need a chart. They have chimeras of knockouts and then they have this whole system at one point where apparently if you have a heterozygote because of allele selection that happens at basically early development if you have a mouse if you have a set of heterozygote mouse you're either going to have in that heterozygote every cell will either be plus plus or minus minus because only one gene is ever used 
for the alleles for the B cells. So a heterozygote with one of each will naturally make a chimera, which I didn't know. And that is really interesting. So you get some really crazy genetics in terms of what they did. But they say they show IgA is required for homing the intestinal lamina propria. Other things like integrins are also important, but without the IgA, these cells do not home to the gut, generally speaking. So germinal center and homing. Then they go in and really start establishing through combination of flow and staining that they, they really lead quite a bit of the process. So how is this working? Uh, they show that they, they look at the dark zone and the light zone and demonstrate that the fast mediated doesn't really, this isn't a dark zone process, but the fast mediated cell death process that occurs in the light zone if you have a bunch of IgA B cell receptor, that turns that off. And that is the dominant mechanism. So you're having this positive selection for IgA positive cells and lamina propria. A, they get there and need IgA to get there. And B, they're, and then they're relatively non-specific, right? So these IgAs cover many bacteria, not a single bacterial moiety on a specific strain, right? So they're a little bit more pan, panoptic. They also show that the, so A, it's the cell death in the light zone. So having the cell, this receptor activation keeps them alive there. And there's a little bit of a T helper component and that enhances it, but it's predominantly this cell death mediated thing. And the resistance to cell death, and they use like fast L negative, you know, knockout systems, then makes it so that IgA cells are not dominant in the gut. So if you get rid of fast cell mediated death for selecting the germinal centers, you no longer see a gut preference for IgA positive B cell, you know, IgA positive B cells in terms of B cell receptor, which is really interesting. So it's saying it's really a key component of the immune selection process is, is this IgA in the gut. And then they show that the IgA mediates stronger B cell receptor signaling. And so especially in the gut centers, like the IgA positive cells have a much more robust response to pathogens, hemoliths, worms, pick something that, that matters in this system. It, it, it's the main driver of the, effect, the effects that you would expect with IgA and humoral immunity in the intestine. So there you go. They, they really were trying to figure out the role of the receptor and where it comes from. The other thing they do is they do some kinetics here that I'm not getting into. It gets really complicated, but they show that it has to exist and then it moves to the gut and then it has the selection in the intestines. So they trace it all the way through. Okay. So if, yeah, if I understand correctly, what is doing explaining why, so why the, IG, so why would a B cell that makes IgA go to the gut? Because then they get this environment that is. Um, right. So they're everywhere to begin with in the marrow. There's a, some even population everywhere, but they preferentially home to the intestine. If you have, if you are an IgA B cell, there's active selection based on this fast cell mediated process to kill everything else or you're resistant nice. to death if you have IgA essentially. Nice. I mean, that makes sense because you want, you want most of your B cell space to be taken by B cells that make IgA that are necessary to keep the IgA that is needed in the gut, I guess. Exactly. So this is basically showing how we end up with the known IgA predominance in the intestine. Nice. Okay, I like. I don't. I don't think about IgA too much. I'll have to admit, I like them. They're so good on my gut. Keep my keep those bacteria in check. <laughs> okay. Well, we're gonna stay in the. We're gonna stay in the in the colon and the in the in the in the gut, because my story is again about you know a another another subset of cells that are trying to be regulatory. They do a regulatory job, and they're they're good at it. So I think they deserve to be highlighted. So in this case, I'm going to, with that, on, on that lines and keeping my, my theme from last episode on gamma delta T cells, let's dive on gamma delta T cells and gut homeostasis. I think you're going to like this story. Um, the the uh, paper is called uh, Conserved Gamma Delta T-cell selection by BTNL proteins limits progression of human inflammatory bowel disease. First, 
uh, authors Robin Dart and Eva Slatareva uh, from the lab of Adrian Heyday at King's College London uh, and uh, the Francis Crick Institute in London. Um, and in this in this study, they look into. I mean, they they are aiming at understanding how different subsets of of of, of gamma delta T cells um, interact with different with different elements because we know there is certain degree of diversity. Uh, gamma delta T cells, although they have a kind of a limited repertoire, they they do some have some kind of specialization. And and a lot of I think a lot is known, and even for people like me that are not in the gamma delta field, you know, especially when it comes to the delta chains, you know, the delta ones, delta twos, and delta threes, and you know, the delta twos are more common in high, more abundant in blood, and delta ones and three are more common in like tumors, things like that. But then when it comes, but then there is also some uh, stratification when it comes to the uh, the gamma chain. And this is what they show in this in this publication is that they look into the function of of gamma delta T cells that are kind of differentiate differentially found between healthy gut and gut with IBD or with so with Crohn's disease or something some kind of inflammation. And in this paper, they they take they have samples from multiple uh, donors, including healthy patients and, and 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 people with inflammatory disease in 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 their bowels, and they show that there is this a particular subset of gamma delta T cells, uh, which is uh, the ones containing the 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 V, uh, so the gamma delta, so the the gamma B four uh, um, chain that do seem to their absence seems to correlate a lot with the uh, inflammation and the, the the existence of an inflammatory disease so this uh these um uh, gamma 4 t cells are mostly recognizing two particular uh, uh this uh btnl proteins uh btnl standing for butyrophilin like proteins which are the known ligands of uh, gamma delta cells and their distribution and their expression are going to vary across different tissues and this well this uh delta 4 so it's gamma gamma 4 t cells they recognize this uh btnl3 positive uh, uh btnl3 and btnl uh, ligands on on the surface of of of, of tissues particularly and when they when they look so they they do a whole kind of um characterization of the t- of the cells in the tissues and sometimes it's not that easy because oftentimes you know for measuring uh by by a fax there's no there are no fax antibodies against every single chain so sometimes you know the absence of a chain kind of gives you the idea that the other chain must be there so a lot of the data is also uh, depends on uh transcriptomic uh, analyses and and things like that so it's I have to say there's a lot of like a lot of things they measure. But very basically what they say is that there is this population uh that is mostly expressing uh delta one, and these are that they, they detect mostly the transcripts of, of, of gamma four, and these are uh present in mostly healthy tissues, but not so much on this on, on inflamed, inflamed tissues. And moreover, the, the, this participant population in question also expressed CD103, which is an integrin that is also uh, very more often associated with in T cells with tissue residency, um, also in alpha, uh, alpha beta T cells, um, and this also give, I think gives the idea that these that this delta gamma delta T cells are really tissue resident. So what they uh, I guess basically what what they show is that the the absence of this particular um, uh, subset is correlated with in, increased uh, inf- with inflammatory disease, and that in, in even there's uh, they, they they I think was really the most interesting part is they look into the expression of the ligands of these uh, gamma four uh, 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 gamma delta T cells, as I mentioned BTNL uh, BTNL three and BTNL four uh, BTNL eight. And there are some polymorphisms that 
reduce the expression of these of these ligands, and these are associated in kind of in Crohn's disease. They're associated with uh, increased um, increased inflammation, and also to some extent in IBD. So they also seem to, to kind of find in in humans this uh, correlation uh, in, in in the data from from humans. So I guess that. Um, yeah, basically, um, they 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 suggest that this 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 reduce uh, this reduction in this distinct uh, population of CD one or three positive V gamma four positive cells are associated with increased uh, um, responses by the other because this this uh, what they show is that this uh, particular population is sub uh, reactive. So it does not react uh, as, as strongly to their ligands as, as other gamma-delta T-cells. And that this is a way by which they're kind of dampening immune responses. So they're rather, they have a rather suppressive phenotype compared to other gamma-delta T-cells. And so the absence, as that's why they suggest that the absence of this population might actually have a detrimental effect because then there's this, this uh, immune modulation that is gone from the gut. Um, so yeah, so you know gamma delta T cells are also part of your of your gut. So how are your gamma delta T cells looking, Jason? You think? Well, they're at least back enough with or the integrin inhibitors I have on board prevent them from leaving. Mm. We're not really sure. Uh, but it sounds like do they know what causes them to go away? Like you have the um, but do they know the cause of the So I think it, in the case of the people with uh, this um, polymorphisms, so basically, because the these uh, these this mutant version of the of the of the of the BTNLs, they are. So I think it's if I understand correctly, I think it's BTNL three um, that is, is 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 mutated, and also then the, the whole complex is, is is expressed less. So the fact that they have um, that they have less of these receptors ex being expressed, then that means that this particular subset of gamma delta T cells are receiving less stimulation, therefore uh, either homing less or proliferating less or like doing less of of their suppressive uh, function. So at least that is the situation in the in uh, when you already have some kind of baseline reduction of these abetenl proteins. Uh, but I don't think like in regular people that don't have, that have regular, normal, uh, ligands, I don't know what would be the, the, the kind of the triggering, uh, uh, thing to, to remove these cells. Hmm. Interesting. More to come then. Yeah. Yeah. But they do see that in both, uh, so in Crohn's disease, they, they do see, um, a reduction uh, on the amount of these cells uh, in, in people. Very interesting. All right. Well, we're going to keep it to the gut. What a day. I love it. Three out of four papers in the intestine. This doctor <laughs> approves. All right. This is in science. It is called Neuromedin U programs eosinophils to promote mucosal immunity of the small intestine. So this is uh, super interesting. It is first author Yu Lee. Last author, Heping Zhu. They also look at pathogens, and I, that's a correction. I was switching up which pathogens. The last paper was looking at uh, Salmonella and other pathogens. This one looks at hemoliths for IgE. So we're switching. We're class switching, Brenda. We're switching from IgA to IgE, and we're going from, but we're still in the gut. So eosinophils, right, really important for type 2 immunity against things like parasites. Signaling in the small intestine that regulates it is pretty unknown. There's a protein called Neuromedin U, NMU, and a receptor, NMU R1. Receptor 1, that's its receptor. They did a bunch of single cell and bulk analysis to start with to generate their hypothesis and did some fate mapping, although who knows if that's what they really did first or not. That is what they presented in terms of order. Um, they demonstrate that this signaling the receptor expression in, in cinephils was programmed by the local microenvironment and enhanced the inflammatory response. So what do I mean by that? Essentially, and, th and this paper is actually 
very interesting but also super hard to read it has like two or three figures in it or maybe four and like 15 supplemental figures with like 20 or 30 panels a pop so it's actually kind of hard to follow the narrative if you're trying to look at the top line science date like just in the article itself without the supplemental i think that's because they they fit it in as the the shorter form communication style and so that then pushed a lot of it to supplemental but just if you're reading through it be download the supplemental folks so they identify that eosinophils are really in intestine have this gene as compared to eosinophils necessarily elsewhere which is kind of unique so other eosinophils don't necessarily have it but in the small intestine if you're there you have to have this and then they created some lineage tracers using a tomato cassette and the appropriate cree and they demonstrate that the and i want i want to get this right here um there they they persist in an active degranulation states they seem to be more active they have less vesicles they're holding on to and they're constantly in a degranulation form now so that was their big first thing so hey they're really important in the intestine they constantly see be degranulating then they demonstrate that the neurons in the gut are responsible for the effects you see so they they demonstrate that through fate mapping that that eosinophils will go to the intestine start upregulating the receptor and that then the ligand is coming from gut specific neurons that generate their functionality to generate the signaling which includes um, responses to hemoliths right to worms and all the other things you expect and il-25 related signaling but if you like look at responses to dss it doesn't matter so this is very specific to what you think of as type 2 immunity generally speaking right and they do this through a combination of lineage tracing experiments and um chimeras as well using um you know the cd45.1 versus cd45.2 trick and then they demonstrate that the presence of these eosinophils unshocking leads to mucosal immunity but that also regulates goblet cell differentiation and so if you get rid of them you don't have as much goblet cell differentiation and you also have decreased immunity and they actually can demonstrate this in organoid culture and do some small intestinal organoid culture and knock out you know take eosinophils with and without and put them in and then see goblet cell formation which is pretty cool to see they also demonstrate that if you get rid of the gene you get rid of the degranulation phenotype you still have eosinophils you just don't have the special eosinophil that we need in the gut to do its thing and so it doesn't degranulate as much and generate that type of immunity and that it is very specific that um this is not super dependent on like so in a rag knockout it doesn't have an effect but if you also get rid of il2 you start seeing a shift right so just base rag which you would expect right because what 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 is you know what's the adaptive immune system doing here at baseline but if you start knocking out other stuff then you get an effect so this is a paper if you are into eosinophils in the gut or looking at pathogen tolerance and parasitology in the intestine it's important to know that there is a very key marker of the, the intestines that are doing this there's this nmur1 receptor and the signaling by the intestinal um, microenvironment through the neurons there to release the factor to generate this functional effect. Oh, and they also do things like DRED receptors, which are those designer receptors ex activated, exclusively activated by designer drugs. Thank you, Brian Roth, again, for that acronym. It is kind of cool. Um, and they use that to drive the system on and off. So they can actually show, because they know how the receptor works as a GPCR, so they can pseudo turn it on and off through a dread and show the, that they can recapitulate the effects. I guess I'm always uh, fascinated by, by the studies that show this close uh, collaboration between, you know, neurons and the immune system. And it's always, always cool to see. I think therefore I am Brenda. Yeah. I mean, it makes, yeah. <laughs> Makes me think all all the new age is like, well, we could meditate our way out of eosinophilia, I guess. We're, we're going to sign you up for a trial for that. But before we sign you up for that trial, we're also going to be speaking with Dr. Alice Long at the Ben Arroyo Research Institute in just a few minutes here. Uh, 
But before we even get to that, there's one more thing, which is stem cell technologies. I'd like to introduce you to immune regulation news. It's a free weekly newsletter brought to you by stem cell science news program, covering research on the regulation, suppression and modulation of the immune system. Immune regulation news keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy events, and jobs relevant to the immunology community. Subscribe for free at immuneregulationnews.com. In other words, if you can't get enough of Tregs, T-cells, and immune regulation, we got your answer. Well, welcome everyone to the second part of the episode. Today, we have with us uh, Dr. Alice Long. She is uh, Associate Member and Principal Investigator at the Benaroya Research Institute at Virginia Mason. And she's going to be talking to us about her work on understanding immune regulation on t on topic with our uh, roundup today. And uh, I, I guess also about her uh, research on type 1 diabetes and how, what are the mechanisms that we can uh, take in order to treat this disease. Uh, Dr. Long, thank you so much for joining us. By the way, this is the second time you are our first repeat guest in the podcast. You joined us uh, when we were having our AAI meeting special in 2022. So we're so happy that you're back. Well, great. Thanks for asking me again. I'm actually honored. I didn't realize I was at the first repeat. It was a lot of fun the first time around. Thank you for being here. Yeah, of course. All right, Brenda, you've gone first the last few times every time because it's been T-cell. It's been very, after after the microbiome mucosal immunity round, it's been T-cells. I'll fire the first one off, but then I'll probably hand it back to your uh, regulatory arms. So T-cell autoimmunity, you focus on type one diabetes. Every, every autoimmune disease is different. So I'll put that out there as just a statement to start things. How T-cell driven is type 1 diabetes as an autoimmune process? Yeah, that's a great question. And I definitely agree that there are differences between autoimmune diseases, but there are also some similarities. There's tolerance is broken, so there's some commonality there. Um, so I would argue that type 1 is more of one of the T-cell focused autoimmune diseases. Um, it has a very strong HLA association, which really does argue for um, CD4 T cells and the HLA interaction. Um, and therapies that target T cells have been successful in type 1 diabetes. Um, so in a prevention trial treating with teplizumab, which is a non-blocking, uh, non-depleting anti-CD3 antibody, you can um, prevent and delay onset of type 1 diabetes with this drug. Um, and there are other anti-CD3 targeting drugs, and there are other drugs that target T-cells that can delay progression. I guess you got to pick my attention when you discuss that there are some HLA uh, restrictions that are associated with, with type 1 diabetes. Uh, just because I like those kind of details, what, what are we talking about? Why? What is the mechanism behind that? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a hard question. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's something we've known. As far as many. we know. Yeah, no, but really, we've known about HLA associations for the autoimmune diseases for a really long time. And we're still struggling to get at the molecular mechanisms. So there's thoughts that this may be due to antigen processing and presentation other things that might be due to levels of expression, but the HLA locus is complex. And so these just might be associations that, and chromatome structure is complex. And so it could be 3D and looping for the DNA also. So I guess we don't know. <laughs> All right, that was a concise answer. I guess that maybe for my, when I think about it, I'm like, well, is it because some HLA uh, uh, subtypes have a higher, like this, they are more likely to accept a peptide derived from, an, I don't know, uh, an islet a cell or something? Is, is it along those lines? It's just because there are certain peptides that are very immunogenic and they're more likely to be presented by specific HLA molecules and not by others. And in that case, wouldn't we expect that to also be uh, playing a part in, in in establishing regulation or regulatory T cells in the thymus or or negative uh, selection in the thymus. Um, 
I don't know. Am I am I around the right right lines, or is it something definitely. completely different that we think? Yeah, yeah. So I think the tricky part is that's definitely part of the equation, and um, I mean the association with air and the thymus um, with thymic selection is definitely an indication, along with the HLA uh, locuses that are associated with type one diabetes. Um, and the mouse model, NOD mouse model, definitely there's a link to how antigen is presented in HLA. Um, and the human disease, not everybody has to have those HLA loci to have type 1 diabetes. Um, so it's a little more complex, um, but definitely there's something to that component to it. Yeah. How that controls regulation and what we've seen in terms of T cell exhaustion and that being associated with response to therapies, uh, we really don't know at all. So then it, essentially the, the working hypothesis is that certain HLAs are just better or actually worse, but in this case, better at picking up specific antigens, which we know. And in this case, those antigens end up being self-antigens, which leads to a problem instead of, you know, killing a pathogen, you get yourself in the crossfire, but it's, it's based on that HLA's predilection to anthropomorphize things a little bit, but it, it's binding is favorably bad for us. Yeah, I think that's a working hypothesis. Um, but honestly, the peptide could be presented and it primes the T cell and to go in one direction or another also. So kind of work both sides of that equation. There's also different types of of type one diabetes. No, you have those that are that kind of subset of disease that is more likely to present in young people. And then other that is more uh, predominant or a diff slightly different presentation in older people. So type one diabetes is autoimmune by definition. Um, we don't really know that there's a difference between childhood and adult type one diabetes. Yes, children, um, often progress faster, um, but whether that's just a rate of disease or the actual mechanism is different, I don't think we know. And as a community, I think we're still trying to figure out whether there are types of type one diabetes, like an endotype kind of, don't, it's putting a word to a concept that I'm not quite sure we've proven yet in the field, Definitely people don't all respond to the same therapy. So put it that way, that something's different about the, their disease. Now, whether that's a, a where they are in the progression of the disease or um, the immunology is different. Um, there's more involvement of the beta cell and disease pathology in some people and immune cells and others. I don't think it's known yet. So then therapeutically, you said, you know, non-depleting, which is good, right? Since you're not going to get rid of all the T cells seems to work and if it has such a strong autoimmune component why do you think it's been so hard with let's say hey i am a kid or an adult i'm showing some type 1 diabetic signs like some rising a1c some in some you know but i'm not so far gone that i have zero beta cells left because once you're at zero beta cells you obviously need a beta cell transplant that's that's the other podcast. That's that's a stem cell podcast. But but if like you got some left, but your immune system starting to behave badly, my understanding is that therapeutically we haven't been able to really stem the tide in a way that it's a standard protocol now in in patient care. What's the barrier to that? Ah, um, great question. And you can probably frame that question with any autoimmune disease. Um, Type one is actually pretty exciting. So um, in the sense that we have autoantibodies to islet antigens that we can detect early in the disease process. And so you're clinically diagnosed with type one diabetes when your pancreas can't make enough insulin. And so you have to use insulin as a replacement therapy. Um, and so that's what you would do instead of a transplant until those are available when your pancreas really can't make enough insulin. So we have actually shown that treating with anti-CD3, when you have autoantibodies and some level of dysglycemia or 
your beta cell is sick, um, but you don't yet need insulin, we can delay that time to needing insulin. So it's actually one of the autoimmune diseases that we can come in early and actually prevent full on clinical presentation. Um, and that's really outstanding and, and unusual because most autoimmune diseases, we wait for the clinical manifestation and then we try to drink, treat the disease. So I'd argue that we've done a little bit in that space, but there's more to be done. So nowadays, what are the, so you mentioned anti-CD3 uh, treatment. Is that the best we have when in, in terms of modulating the uh, immune system to prevent the kind of the full onset of diabetes or to treat uh, already something more established? In terms of immune modulation, that is the only drug approved to date for type 1 diabetes, which makes diabetes unusual from other autoimmune diseases too, because other, other autoimmune diseases have a number of other options they can try for treatment. Um, and because of the availability of insulin as a replacement therapy, it's been, we have a higher bar to reach um, before we can go for immune therapies. But when we've shown that we can prevent the onset of type 1 diabetes, that really is good rationale. Yeah, which would explain things like steroids and stuff being off the table because of their side effects and everything else. And they do work. They did try those, but yes, they're off the table because of the side effects. Yeah. Well, they also raise your, your blood insulin levels. So <laughs> the, the treatment makes the problem worse acutely too, which isn't great. So then how do you think the lessons from type one diabetes work can be applied to autoimmunity more broadly to sort of do the reverse of my first question? Yeah, so I actually think the concept, of, um, and others have shown, so Owen McKinney's done some nice work also to show that T-cell exhaustion likely is involved in other autoimmune diseases in a beneficial way. To this date, uh, this has all been association, um, so I do want to put that out there. We're trying to figure out what might be going on um, and the mechanisms underlying those, but um, in terms of T-cell exhaustion, I think there's a good argument that it is involved in at least more than one autoimmune disease. Maybe not all, but at least more than one. So when, when you talk about T-cell exhaustion, so you just, just mentioned that we we see we might we think you might have actually a beneficial correlation. What is the what how should we think about? Because of, often we're thinking of T-cell exhaustion in the context of either cancer or maybe, you know, uh, chronic viral infection. So I never, th I don't think a lot about T-cell exhaustion in the concept of autoimmunity. So do we think, is that a, could that be some kind of um, adaptive response? Like, well, it's actually a good thing. Or do you think it's just a side effect of um, the exhaustion, the traditional exhaustion? In, or how do we understand exhaustion in the context of autoimmunity, in particular, I guess, CD8 cells? Yeah. Um, so I think the question is kind of two parts in the sense there's exhaustion in the, in the context of therapy, and that's kind of what is the drug doing, and I think that's kind of signal one without uh, signal two or three, um, where you do get exhaustion and that's associated with better response. Um, but we have seen increased levels of exhaustion in slow progressors and islet-specific cells. And so um, whether that's taking up space for other cells that are lytic, whether that is um, tissue repair. So if you think about it in the context of a chronic viral infection, um, those cells aren't capable of completely getting rid of the virus, but they are already capable of getting rid of enough and getting rid of the damaged cells. So you keep the tissue intact. And so maybe the pancreas is already starting to be sick and stressed, and you're getting rid of those few sick and stressed cells and leaving the others to um, do the job. Uh, so that would be one argument, neither of which we have solid proof for yet, but those are hypotheses that are being pursued. But are these exhausted cells for sure kind of antigen specific? Yeah, so we have shown in the natural history of disease that people that have slow progression do have islet-specific um, increased levels of exhausted cells. And the therapy, they are 
more global, the therapy targets CD3 cells. Within those, yes, um, the islet-specific cells do also increase in exhaustion. So it sounds like then, you know, T-cell exhaustion is usually, air quotes, bad, right? But it sounds like in this case, they're, air quotes, good. Does that mean that one of the therapeutic angles that we're going after now, we being the general sense here, is exhausting T-cells deliberately? Yeah, I would argue that, yeah. And kind of a another piece of evidence to that maybe being beneficial is the checkpoint blockade for cancer. When that occurs, you get autoimmunity as a adverse event. And so that's all about getting rid of exhaustion. <laughs> so, so if we can figure out how to do the inverse, that may be great. Have there been documented cases of people get having uh i don't want to say getting diabetes uh, after cancer treatment but is is that something that actually happens that you exacerbate autoimmune diseases to a point that you 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 maybe cure your cancer but you get something else that's exactly what happens with uh, about i think it's about a quarter of, of subjects treated with um so it's not temporary. I, I, I know that you have, you know, a cytokine release syndrome, things like that. You, most people are maybe treated with tocilizumab or things, but you're talking about long-term autoimmune disorders that occur after checkpoint inhibition. Mm -hmm. Yep. I was not aware that the number was so high, like yeah. long-term uh, complications. Isn't that usually immune checkpoint colitis? There's a lot of colitis. Yeah, it's a whole range of autoimmune diseases. Yeah, how, how much of it, how much type 1 diabetes comes after checkpoint blockade for... You know, I don't know the exact numbers for that, but it's it's not super rare. <laughs> or at least endocrine um, diseases in general. That's a, that's a side effect that I wasn't thinking about from for checkpoint. Well, I mean, of course, it makes complete sense when you, when you spell it out like that. But it's treatable, so yeah. Um, I think of it from the patient's perspective; they're looking for some extra time. Yeah. And so we're talking about T cells, of course. You know, uh, bad T cells, islet specific, or other you know detrimental T cells activating in the pancreas. What about T Rex? Are you at all looking into in your research or in your interest? Are you a lot looking at what can we do to maybe in, in increment or uh, intervene in the in the context of T-Rex and in, in type 1 diabetes? Yeah. Um, so in my research, I've been focusing more about kind of understanding the molecular mechanisms of exhaustion, what drives it, how those cells functioning. Um, but I'm also involved in a lot of clinical trials in the type 1 diabetes space. And certainly, um, there's still remaining interest in figuring out how to augment um, regulatory T cells and think about when in the disease progression that might actually work best. Um, is Treg regulation something that's lost early, where we need to kind of think about treating early in the disease stages with Tregs and maybe later in the disease, that's a little too late. And that's when you need to think about exhaustion. Makes sense. Makes so, sense. so jumping back to exhaustion, um, which I don't guess you don't jump to exhaustion, but you <laughs> slowly roll into it. Um, what are the main molecular mechanisms that you've been able to dig up? Like what, you know, you're going to go, we talked about, oh, it'd be great to drug it and cause exhaustion. Well, what, what causes exhaustion? Besides yeah, that's yeah, so um, we don't have any answers yet, but uh, definitely T cell receptor signaling that is sustained um, instead of episodic. Um, and so how that occurs, when that occurs, and how you can make that occur naturally is a challenge. Um, we do interestingly see increased levels of exhaustion with some islet antigens and not others. So we're trying to frame some of our questions around that to understand why some individuals may have different levels of exhaustion based on specificity. So maybe some TCRs are stronger and they're over, over, I think this is what we see also in the cancer situation that there's certainly different tiers of TCR affinities and those that are a very high affinity are often very, you know, they can be very efficacious 
but then they're usually the first ones to get exhausted and then you end up with a different kind of response in the long term. So I guess, is it also some kind of quality of different TCRs that you can measure? Yeah, I wish we could. That, that was one of our first obvious questions and that didn't seem to pan out quite right. And I don't know if we weren't looking in a precise enough manner or um, had the right tools or that just wasn't the answer. But um, yeah, I, we don't yet know. We're still posing those questions. And the challenge in the humans is kind of getting the right comparisons to do it. Um, and what you know, people do you compare to the others or what specificities within an individual do you compare to each, each other? So, Yeah, I guess the, between the diverse, I mean, HLAs are very diverse. So if that is a driving factor, then you're going to have a lot of diversity amongst humans. And I, yeah, and I guess that also maybe mouse models, well, it's always a limitation, right? Uh, using mouse models to study a human disease at some point it gets especially if you're talking about t-cell t-cell repertoires things like that are so human then yeah, must be. I think that mouse models would be great it's just not something that I've developed as much in my own lab and so it's something that I would do in collaboration with somebody else so it looks like there's a lot still to to learn about uh, immunity of type 1 diabetes and let's hope that we can find Something or that the guys at the stem cell side um, just make some artificial pancreas and then we can all we can all be, you know, it all can be solved. But it, of course, a huge issue, especially nowadays with this this kind of diseases being ever more prevalent. Um, so the need is obviously there. And the field is not exhausted yet. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Nice. Love it. Excellent pun. Uh, so, so to finish on this high, on, on, on this, uh, how you say high note. Um, so we I'd like to ask our guests a uh, kind of lateral question at the end of our show, just to, so that the, the listeners can get to know a little bit more about them. Uh, so we would like to ask you, uh, Alice, so is there a, a hobby that you always wanted to pursue and never had time to? And if not, if there's a hobby that really defines you that you would like to share with our listeners today? Yeah, uh, maybe I'll pick that hobby that I haven't had time to do yet, but would still be on the wish list. And that's to um, kind of see more of the underneath of the deep sea. I'd love to be on those little submersibles where you can look under out of the glass and kind of just troll around down there and see what else is down there. It seems like a whole nother world. Okay, but don't go see the Titanic. Just, just that's no, the one no, no. you should stay away. From. Oh, too soon. <laughs> see all the too yeah. soon. I'm sorry. Too soon. I'm sorry. Too soon. That was, that was that was that was not that was a little bit um unrequested. Uh, but that sounds so cool. <laughs> like you know, like you, like Captain Nemo in the Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea yeah. situation. More like that. Let's go for that. For the 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 epic. Um, have you ever done any diving of any type? No, I like to swim and I, I snorkel, but I haven't even scuba. So yeah, I'd be just doing it whole hog. You 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 can you do scuba dive, right, uh, Jason? I I little, not very much. I, I haven't done a ton of that either. Well, we had a couple of guests that were scuba divers uh, enthusiasts, so maybe we should all we should get you in touch, and then maybe yeah. you can just <laughs> you yeah. can start. Not that maybe not in a submarine, but. Um, and maybe it's just a little bit more deep, or you can ask James Cameron for, for his submarine. That one will get you to the Titanic for sure. Um, well, it's been a pleasure, uh, talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining. Um, um, and we wish you success. I hope that we get to see you in next AI meeting. We, we couldn't yeah. see you this year, but, uh, let's see if we can run into each other next year. Jason, anything to add? Nope, nope, we'll leave it there. But I guess I was going to say AAI is not next to an ocean next year, so we could go scuba diving. But one time it will be. Yeah, 2025. That's Hawaii. Yeah. There we go. All right, scuba oh. Hawaii 25. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Brenda knows where Hawaii is. We're here for the long run. You know, we're thinking ahead. <laughs> Multi-year view, always important. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. and. uh We'll stay in touch. That sounds great. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our show. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Podcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.